the, the hardest thing for me as a, as a Sunday school teacher in this section, we're in chapter 18, the hardest thing for me uh, is not to make this details about details and, and knowing facts. I want to try to apply these verses that are sort of difficult to apply in everyday life. I'll try to do that. But we're looking at, uh, we're in chapter uh, 18 and we're fixing to start the trial of Jesus uh, the, in the, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, there's differences of, of how these things are put together. But I'm going to try to put together uh, uh, the, 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 the chain of events as we see them in all the Gospels. Uh, Mark, I mean, uh, John is going to recognize that the first trial is going to be with Annas. And I'll talk about him in a second. Uh, uh, the next one, both of them. Uh, not all of them. John does not discuss this one, but Caiaphas is the next part of this trial. Jesus is taken to Annas, who used to be the high priest. He had not been the high priest for 12 years. This was unusual. This was against the Mishnah, but uh, he had a lot of uh, a lot of people thought highly of him. Still, he hadn't been high priest for 15 years, but they still considered him to be some Jews. And he had five sons and a son-in-law. Uh, that came after him, so uh, he hasn't been high priest for a long time. Caiaphas is next. Caiaphas is, these are both Jews. And then uh, the Jesus goes to trial before Pilate, who is a Roman governor. And then uh, Pilate sends him to Herod. Uh, and that, of course, is not going to be in the book of John. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And then Pilate sentences him, and then he is crucified. So, uh, the, the Gospel of John does not talk about this uh, talk about this one, and it does not talk about this one. But the other synoptics sort of put this together. So the order of events is is uh, Annas, Caiaphas, who are both Jews, and then all these are the Romans. And then so we're going to be looking at this today. And so this is going to be this process, five step process that Jesus went through. As he was falsely condemned before he goes on the cross, and that's sort of the is the order of things. Although all the books do not necessarily record them, that is the uh, comprehensive view of what Jesus went through. So now let's look at John uh, 18. Does anybody have need lesson 36 from last week? We're going to use finish 36, and then we're going to go to uh, 37. Uh, who needs 36? How many do you need? One, two, three. Do you need one? Do you need one? Does anybody else need John 36? You need it. We have the Newells back here. If anybody not met the Newells, uh, they are members of our church. They've been coming, but they have not been in here before. So uh, unless I run them off, maybe they'll be back again. And uh, who have uh, Lesson 36? Anybody need Lesson 36? Okay, here we go. John, chapter 18. I'm not going to review because i got a lot to cover. So we're going to look at John 18, verse 12. This is going to be the, the beginning of these uh, courts, trials, Sham trials that Jesus is going to be brought before before he is uh, crucified by the Romans. Then the attachment of troops. We said 
The detachment of troops would be anywhere from 200 to 600 people. These are Roman troops. They were, they were invited by and, uh, and, and brought in by the Jews and their leaders because they expected trouble. Uh, Jesus is the betrayer. He's the apostle. He's the disciple. He's betrayed Jesus. He's identified Jesus. And they now they come to the Garden of Gethsemane and they're going to arrest Jesus, which we talked about last week. So we've got between two and six hundred troops coming to arrest Jesus. Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him, and they led him away to Annas first. So here we got Annas recorded in the book of John and his trial recorded in the book of John, for he was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, who is the uh, current high priest. Uh, of this year, and that was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Uh, I'll get back to this in a second. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known to the high priest, and that is John, the writer of this gospel, the apostle, and went with Jesus into the courtroom of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, Weren't you also one of this man's disciples, weren't you? And Peter denied him the first time, just as Jesus predicted, I am not. Now the servants and officers who made a fire of coal stood there. It was cold. They warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them and warmed himself. Then the high priest brought Jesus Then the high priest asked Jesus and his disciples about his doctrine. This is Annas, and it occurs in his house, according to Luke. Uh, If you're writing these things down, it occurs in his house. Luke 22.54 tells us they're at Luke's, they're at Annas' house. So if you want to know where your things are, if you're into that, if you'd like to know order of things, that's where they are. Uh, Then Jesus answered and said, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret, I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like that? And Jesus answered and said, If I've spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas the priest. So we're done with Annas. And we're going to go to Caiaphas the high priest. Then it goes back to Peter's second and third denial. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Then one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of one whose Peter had just cut his ear off, that's Malchus, which we talked about last week. Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Okay, then they're going to go to Caiaphas, the high priest currently head of the uh, Supreme Court of the nation of Israel. Then they led Jesus from Caius to the Praetorium, and it was early morning. That they themselves didn't go into the praetorium lest they should be defiled, that they may not eat the Passover. And Pilate said and went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said, If he weren't an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Then Pilate said to him, You take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore the Jews said to him, It's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, Are you speaking about about yourself about this, or did others tell you concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So I should not be delivered to the Jews, but my kingdom, now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said, Are you a king? Jesus said, You rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said, What's truth? And when he'd said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all, but you have a custom that I should release someone to you at Passover. Therefore, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, No, don't release this man, but release Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a <coughs> insurrectionist, a robber. So we have this story. Uh, and we have this chronologically uh, uh, order of events, chronological order of events. And so we first of all, we see we're on uh, lesson 36, and we are on point F. Lesson 36, point F. The first trial is in front of Annas. Remember, he's no longer the high priest, but by reputation, because of pride, they bring him to him, and he hears him first. Uh, and so, uh, And so we see him brought before... Uh, Annas, and uh, Annas asked him this question in verse uh, 19. The high priest then asked Jesus and his disciples and his doctrine, and Jesus said, I openly spoke to the world, and I've taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews meet, and in secret I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Why do you ask me? So we see this. The start of this trial. Now, to begin with, let me back up. The Mishnah is the Jewish law that governs, one of the things that governs, it governs trials. And the Mishnah was the uh, uh, playbook, the rule book for how trials. Now, we know from Jewish history that their government and their trials is based upon their laws about fairness equity, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, based on fairness, based upon witnesses, based upon uh, uh, um, certainty before, uh, before sentencing is passed. And so a lot of the, uh, the uh, laws we have in America are based upon these same Judaic principles. Roman principles are inter- interspersed in here. So we have rules governing fair trials. And there are five or six rules that the Jews and the Romans broke and they, as they illegally brought Jesus to trial and they found him guilty by illegal means. And the first thing, so they're bringing him before Annas. The first thing, I've told you the Sanhedrin is the Supreme Court of the Jewish of Jewish nation. They're the ones that have the final say-so in whether a man is innocent or guilty. So the first rule they broke is what? And we're on uh, Lesson 37.A. So this law governs it. So the first law they break is what? The Sanhedrin 
They cannot meet at night. That's just a rule. Uh, it just uh, brings in too much uh, unknowns. It brings in too many temptations for dishonesty. It is generally when someone meets at night, night they want to uh, they want to uh, sneak something through. So the Mishnah said, "Hey, you can't do that." So they the first time that Jesus is brought, he's in the garden at night. So they bring him to, before the Sanhedrin. They cannot meet at night. Law one broken. They can't meet at night. So we see that they hustled Jesus, illegally started asking him questions. Second thing, the death penalty. What do I have by the death penalty? The death penalty, what? It cannot be initiated same day. Why is that? How does that protect us? Appeals. We want to make sure that the, before we carry out such a final thing against the person, we want to make sure that that person is guilty beyond a shadow of death. And so we don't want to say, hey, you're guilty, you're killed. Now, what we do is if people are on death row for 50 years, that, of course, is, is wrong, too. Uh, but, the, but the law said you can't convict a man of death penalty and you can't uh, carry out that uh, judgment on the same day. They, they, they found him guilty of death and they initiated his death penalty on the same very day. And so that is a violation of rules, another way in which Jesus was railroaded and he was illegally uh, tried and convicted for something he did not do. Of course, we know, and this is true in our day and time, although it is not very true today, false witnesses... Cannot be tolerated. It is wrong to lie under oath. And we know, of course, from, from these synoptic gospels that they regularly did that. And we see that in many instances. But if you look at Matthew, go back to Matthew 26, and it's in the other synoptic gospels. Look at Matthew 26, verse uh, 59, in this railroading of Jesus, uh, we see in verse 59, the chief priests, the elders, and the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. And the last two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days, which he never said that, and we know what he said he was talking about, his body. So false witnesses were brought. They were tolerated. Their, their witness did not even match. It contradicted each other. So like in today in America, we should not tolerate false witnesses, but we do. So Jesus was railroaded and the law was violated. What was the next thing done? It was a violation of law against Jesus. We see it in point four. Jesus was hit. He was hit in the trial. 
And we see that in verse 22 of chapter 18. Uh, Jesus simply answers a question in verse 22. And when he said these things, one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, Do you answer the high priest like? So Jesus is bound in some way. Didn't have handcuffs, but he's bound by rope or however he's bound. But why he's bound, he's smacked on the face. That was against the law. It's against the law today. You cannot interrogate a guy like that and coerce. Uh, coerce an answer or force a, uh, a yes or a no or an innocent or whatever you're trying to get out of a guy. You can't hit a guy. So Jesus is hit in the face during this mock trial. So the next one, what's the next one? The Sanhedrin. They met for a capital case. They cannot meet before a feast day. Before a feast day. So the Sanhedrin, if we look at the history, they're meeting the day before Passover. So that is a no-no. That is against the law. People are visiting. People are, are worshiping. It's a holy day. And so therefore, laws, it's time for vacation. We can't meet during solemn feast days. That was prohibited they do it anyway. And then the one that Jesus really camps out on, and Jesus defends himself with this one, is point number six. He's accused before witnesses are brought in. And that is the, the concept of presumption of innocence. We in this country have a law, although it is no longer followed. If you look at the impeachment trials, the assuming of innocence and not the assuming of guilt. Jesus was assumed to be guilty before witnesses were brought in. That was against the law. It's against the law today. And Jesus is going to use point six in his reaction to being hit and his reaction to Annas. So we see these six. There are others These are the big six as far as laws, rules violated. Jesus is railroaded as he's brought before Annas. And these are some of the different things that that was against the law. Everybody know where we're at here. Okay. Annas, point B, lesson 37. He said, he said, he asked about his disciples and his doctrine. What doctrine is Annas asking about. Doctrine means teaching. So Annas, the, the uh, high priest Emeritus, Amer, is it Emeritus or Amaretus? Whatever the word is. Huh? Emeritus? Emeritus. There you go. Thank you, dear. The claim is Jesus' doctrine is that He is the Son of God. And you find that in John 19. Look over at John chapter 19, verse 7. The Jews answered Him, We have a law, and according to our law, He ought, ought to die because He made Himself the Son of God. So as, as Brian said, Jesus' teaching, when boiled down to it, is that He is the Son of God. That's why this book is written, and that is why uh, uh, He came to, to, to make His claim as the Son of God. He did. 
And he is, and that was his fundamental teaching, that he is the Son of God. So Annas, why did Annas ask about that particular question? Any thoughts? Why did Annas ask that question about his teaching, about his claim that he was the Son of God? Any thoughts about that one? He could have asked a bunch of different questions. Easiest way to hang him. That's blasphemy, right? The Jews believe, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. And they believed if, if someone claimed to be God other than God, who they believed was one God, they didn't believe or understand the, Trini- the doctrine of the Trinity. So Jesus comes along, says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, claims to be the Son of God. And a myriad of verses that we've looked at. So Anna says, Let's nail it down. Are you saying you're the Son of God? If you are, that's blasphemy, and we have a we have a biblical reason to kill you. So that's probably why. Uh, many other reasons, perhaps. Can you think of any others? That's the, probably the most uh, easy to understand, so that they could kill him, and they could justify that in their understanding of the law and the Scripture. They hated him. They had already predetermined him to be guilty, and so to cover and to soothe their conscience, they wanted to understand if that's what really Jesus was teaching. So they asked him about his doctrine. They asked him about his disciples. Anybody have any comments about that? Very, very easy to understand this part of the trial. Jesus' answer in verse uh, 20, uh, and I thought this was helpful for one of my commentators. Uh, 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 look at verse 20. Jesus said, I spoke openly to the world. I taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews meet. In the secret I've said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me. According to one of my commentaries, look at point B. Jesus was asking for a fair trial. He knew the law and he knew point six that witnesses had to be called before accusations could be made. So Jesus said, you're accusing me of this. I know the law. I need to see witnesses. And so he says, why don't you ask the witnesses, ask them who have heard me, and ask them what they've said. Indeed, they know what I've said. So Jesus is asking for a fair trial, but his opponents had already decided on their guilt. This is a principle for us as Christians. Look at this. It is not wrong to protect your legal rights. Okay? Jesus didn't, however, always do that. He didn't always... Use all of his legitimate rights. So, it is not wrong for you as a Christian to defend yourself in court. What is wrong? 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is to sue another brother, right? And we're not to sue other brothers in Christ, and we're not to take them to court, but we are rather to be defrauded, Scripture says. But it is okay for us to defend ourselves in court for our rights according to the law in which God is the sovereign of the laws, right? So it is okay to defend yourself. I know some Christians who say you're to turn the other cheek and you cannot defend yourself. That's wrong to defend yourself. What is wrong with that? And what does the phrase, turn the other cheek, mainly talk about 
in the Sermon on the Mount. Thoughts about that? Forgiveness and not being vindictive. Not harboring the grudge, not always wanting to get revenge. We're to remember, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So when you turn the other cheek, that means you forgive, you're not vindictive, you don't always want your rights and all this, blah, blah, blah. But we, it is okay to take care of yourself and to defend yourself in court. Jesus demanded that. He said, the law says this, I came to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law, and all the law will be fulfilled, so I have a right to witnesses. And so he defended himself before this unholy trial set up that violated all these laws, and he just said, I need to be, I need a fair trial. Of course, that was not answered, and, uh, and so they actually took offense at his defending himself, and that's one of, the, one of the reasons why the guy hit him. He perceived that he was being uh, uh, dishonoring the high priest when, in fact, Jesus wasn't, but he was simply asking for his rights as a accused person so that he could have witnesses. Everybody understand that? Uh, we go through the trial, the uh, second denial of Peter. We've talked about that. Many, many times, I'm not going to go over it again, but we understand that his, his denials were predictive and purposeful. It was predicted by Jesus, and the reason he was, he did what he did was for the purposes of God that he would be brought to repentance, and he would be able to encourage others who struggle with the same issues of unfaithfulness, and we read about that in Luke. We spent a lot of time on that. I'm not going to do that again now for that. So now let's look at, uh, so we got the next he's brought to Caiaphas. Caiaphas is the current high priest. It's not recorded in John, but if you want to read that, and uh, for time's sake, I won't, but if you want to look at the, uh, it's in Matthew 26, and you would see that in verses 57 through 68, if you want to read about how that trial went before Caiaphas. That is not recorded in the book of John. Uh, and so we have this record here. Now in John's book, we now go, we skip Caiaphas, and then we go straight to Pilate. So here we are now in book of John. We're now before the first Roman court, and we're before Pilate. Any questions about this? This is where we are in this chronologic, in this order of events. can't speak today. Now we're before Pilate, the Roman governor. Several things we need to see here. Uh, I think, uh, verse 28, they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. Do you know what a praetorium is? It's in your notes, huh? The praetorium was the headquarters of the military governor. Normally, Pilate stayed in Caesarea, which is where uh, his province headquartership was. He normally stayed there. But what the Romans did when there was a Roman, when there was a Jewish feast day, because hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people came in for the feast day, they sent a, a group of Roman leaders and soldiers with, with troops in order to protect against violence or any kind of insurrection. So Pilate was there because it was a feast day to guard against insurrections, and the praetorium he was in where he convened his military governorship was a temporary place. So the praetorium, that's what that is. 
They work from 6 in the morning till about 10 o'clock in the morning. Very short day, less than banker's hours. Ha, ha, ha. But uh, they got their work done very early uh, so they could do whatever they wanted to do. So Pilate's here. They bring him before the praetorium. Uh, look at the Jews. This is very interesting. Verse 28. They themselves didn't go into the praetorium lest they would be defiled that they may eat the Passover. So these self-righteous, hypocritical Jews who were on the outside very clean and demure and holy, they didn't want to be defiled, so they brought Jesus to the courtyard and they didn't go in with Him. And so Jesus goes in by Himself with some Roman soldiers before Pilate, but they themselves couldn't go in there. You notice the, the hypocrisy and the irony of that? This is why Jesus, in the Scriptures, was so hard on the Pharisees and the scribes and the leaders because they were hypocrites. They were so concerned what people thought about them, but they were on the inside. Let's look at Matthew 23. It's the, it's the woe to the Pharisees chapter. The whole chapter is Jesus's, uh, uh, anger against the hypocrisy, against the legalist, self-absorbed Pharisees and religious leaders who were responsible for leading his people astray. And so look what Jesus says. I'm not going to read it all for length of time, but, uh, we're very familiar uh, with these verses. Uh, look at verse 25. This is this de- this defines what the Pharisees were doing. They wouldn't go into the praetorium because they were, would have defiled them, so they couldn't eat the Passover meal. Look, verse 25. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees! You're hypocrites. You cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of extortion. You're full of self indulgence, blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, and outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for your whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then in verse 33, he says, You're a bunch of brood of snakes. How are you going to escape the condemnation of hell? So here we have these self-righteous Pharisees, wicked on the inside, so hypocritical, and so uh, blasphemous in their treatment of Jesus with the, you know, they say we're going to filth the law. They break the law for their own purposes, right? And then they'd want to appear outwardly holy. And so they don't even G- take Jesus inside the praetorium. So this shows their hearts. And so when, so we see that. And then uh, look at verse, uh, 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 what Pilate's response. Now, Pilate, in verse 29, went out and said to them, What accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate, according to one of my commentators, and I'm going to read it because it's very short and it's very... Pilate knew that the Jesus Christ accusers were jealous. And he knew that they had no case which Pilate would recognize, so they insinuated that they had already found him guilty of death. And so he brings, he bring, comes out and he says, 
What is your accusation against this man? Knowing what they think. And so look at their answer. They answered and said, If he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's the insinuation. He's evil. We have already had a trial. We have found him guilty. And so we bring him to you. We have found him guilty of the death penalty for blasphemy. But we have to bring him to you. And so they bring him to him. Look what he says in verse... uh, Then Pilate said, You take him and judge him according to your law. Then the Jews said, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which is spoken, signifying by what death he would die. What does all that mean? (coughs) From your notes, when the Romans took over the nation of Israel and ruled the nation of Israel in A.D. 6, Before that, the Jews could carry out whatever trials or whatever punishments that they deemed necessary. They were a sovereign nation. They could do that. And often they would carry out death penalties for crimes. That was within their jurisdiction. That was their government. But when the Romans took over, they guarded the capital offense uh, judgment, and they would not allow anyone under their control to carry out capital uh, defense punishment because they reserved that for them since they ruled over the nation of Israel at that time. So that's what Pilate says. You take him and judge him according to your law. Well, the nation Jews said they knew they couldn't give him the capital penalty, death penalty. So they said, no, we're going to bring him to you. Because what did they want him to do? They wanted him to crucify Jesus. What was the normal way that Jews punished capital offense? Stoning. They stoned Stephen, right? In Deuteronomy, we we read, let's turn to Deuteronomy. Uh, They normally stoned people. It was painful, but it was quick. Uh, But look at uh, Deuteronomy 21. We see an instance. Uh, this the normal way in which they carried out uh, for rebellion. Look, this is a, this is sort of scary to read, but I'm going to read it. And uh, boy, I would have been stoned if it would have been the rule of them. Of look at verse 18, 21, uh, 21, 18. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they've chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of them and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gate of the city, and they shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn, rebellious, he didn't obey our voice, he's a glutton and a drunk. Then all the men of this city would stone him to death with stones to put away the evil from Israel. Wow! I would have been stoned as a young man. Okay, so normally uh, that kind of behavior was dealt with uh, very, very quickly uh, so as to prevent the evil from spreading and to show uh, the, 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 the necessity to obey the law of God. It was a theocracy. So that's the way they would normally... Lots of stones. Lots of stones. So that's the normal way. So, so he said, you take him in judgment according to your law. So they know, hey, we can't 
issue capital punishment and so, hey, we want you to do it. Now understand this in the providence of God. In the providence of God, Jesus didn't come to be stoned, right? Jesus came to be crucified on a cross. Now it wasn't unusual, it was unusual, but it wasn't prohibited. The Jews sometimes hung people. Now if you're still in the same Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22. If a man can commit a sin deserving of death, and he's put to death, you hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you should bury him that same day so you don't defile the land which the Lord has given you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. What does that mean to us as Christians? How does this tie in? In the sovereignty of God, in the providence of God, they had to be... This is the fullness of time, right? The Jews had to be under Roman authority so that the Romans could execute Jesus by crucifixion. Jesus had said many times in the book of John, and let's look at that just so you don't think I'm making these things up. Uh, we see that Jesus had said uh, many times... Look at John 3.14... And lifted up is a metaphor for crucifixion. As he's hung up on a cross uh, above the earth, he's lifted up. We see that in three, uh, three verse, chapter three, fourteen. Uh, Jesus says, uh, "And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, which is going to be a type of Christ being lifted up uh, some three thousand years later, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up." So the nation of Israel, they had to look to that serpent and trust and only look to that serpent. And the plague of, the, of being bitten by the snakes was healed. So that's a picture of us looking to Christ for the redemption and, and for the reconciling of ourselves to God. So that is the metaphor that was used in the Old Testament. So Jesus says, I must be lifted up. Look at 828 in the book of John. All of these scriptures... Uh, uh, are in complete uh, uh, agreement. There is no uh, difference. There's no chaos in Scripture. It's all uh, uh, consistent. Look at 8.28. Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak. So again, He says, I'm going to be lifted up. Look at chapter 12. Uh, verse 32 and 33. This is the providence of God that the nation of Rome would judge him and he would be sentenced to crucifixion. 12, 23. Uh, 32 and 33, excuse me. Uh, and if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all types of people to myself. He said this signifying by what death he would die. So we see that this had to be fulfilled this way. And so when it says, cursed is he that hangs on a tree, what does that mean and how does that relate to Christ and what he did on the cross for us? He represented our sin. And so we know from Psalm 22, some people says he quoted this whole psalm on the cross. 
that's not in Scripture. It's speculative. Could be right. Could be wrong. I don't think he had enough energy to quote that psalm. <laughs> he was at the point of death. But it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus is actually accursed from God. The first time he's ever been separated from eternity past, he is actually bearing the sin of God's people on his own back. And he's forsaken and he's cursed by God. Our sin is imputed to him and his righteousness is imputed to us. So see the the, uh, awesomeness of this and the application that Jesus actually being crucified, he is actually being cursed being accursed of God as He bears our sins, and Jesus uh, is is absorbing God's wrath against us for our sins. Everybody understand that? The significance of this. Not by accident. Nothing is by accident. And so we see Jesus dying the way He was uh, prophesied to die, and the deep meaning of His death on the cross, that He's crucified and He's accursed uh, for the sins of His people. And his father pours his wrath on him. Comments or questions about that? The significance of this, uh, and I didn't know if you understood the verbiage, so I want to be very careful to understand. It is not law, verse 31, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, signifying by what death he would die. Prophecies fulfilled, crucified on the cross, forsaken by God. That is the significance of this order of events. Verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? What was, why was Pilate asking him that? And why would this be interesting or important to Pilate? He's That's right. So he's asking Jesus to cover his own backside. He's the ruler. He's the governor. He's trying to prevent sedition and, 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 and uh, he's trying to keep uh, the Roman uh, governance over the nation of Israel intact. He's responsible. This is his territory. So he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Implying if you are the king of the Jews... What Diane said, you're going to cause trouble and sedition and you're going to wreak havoc on our kingdom. And Jesus said, he's checking his heart. He asked this question because he's thinking of himself and his job to protect the nation of Rome. And Jesus, look what Jesus, he always does this. He questions Pilate's heart and motivation. And so Jesus asked him, are you speaking this about yourself? Or did others tell you concerning me? Are you curious in your own mind, in your own heart about this? Are you just covering yourself? Are you just doing your... Or is there something in your heart? Why are you asking this question? And so Jesus gets to the heart of the matter and really wants to know the motivation for this question. Is it just political or is there something deep inside? Remember, we'll get into this next time. Remember about Pilate and the struggle he had with this. And his wife had a dream about him. And we'll talk about all this next week. Uh, so Pilate had a lot of uh, intrepidation about this. And uh, he, was so, uh, he was so convicted about this that he washed his hands in innocence. He struggled with this, right? Uh, so we'll talk about all this next week. And Jesus said, you t- and then Pilate said, Am I Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Verse 36 is a very important verse. 
36 and uh, 37. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from here. Pilate said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus said, You say rightly, for I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And so, when Jesus says in verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world, what does He mean? My kingdom, what is the kingdom of God? Matthew, the whole theme of Matthew is the kingdom of God is at hand. The whole book is written to Jews about Jesus coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is the kingdom of God? And when Jesus says, my kingdom is not, what does that mean? Okay, good, yes. The rule of God. Let's look at, uh, everybody is uh, very correct. Let's look at what the Bible says. What is the kingdom of God? And we see this, uh, and I did, I did not write these down in your notes. So, uh, uh, so write these down. The kingdom of God, what is it? Kingdom of God. We see this in various spots. We see it all in the book of Matthew. And there's many, many verses in the book of Matthew. I'm going to look at these. Matthew 3, 2. 6, 13. 6, 33. 13, 11. 13, 38. And 19, 14. We see it in Romans that David read today, ironically. I don't know if you caught that. Uh, you had no way of catching that. But John 3, 3 and 5. We got 1 Corinthians 15, 24. And then when he, Pilate asked the question, Are you king? Jesus answers Pilate. And this is going to be according to Scripture. We see Paul writing about this. 117 and 615. And then, of course, we see this in the Revelation of the Apostle John. Let's look at the kingdom of God. He asks this question. Jesus says, My kingdom of not of this world. Let's look at Romans 14, verse 17. You've defined it. Sally and Carolyn have both uh, defined what it is. The kingdom of God is the internal relationship and the rule of God in a man's heart. It is not an external political uh, uh, kingdom, but it is internal. It is God reconciling men to Himself through the work of Christ. So it's an internal, uh, Holy Spirit-generated faith apprehension. It's being in the family of God. It's transferred from from the family of the devil to the family of God. It's being adopted into the family. It's being reconciled. All the things that Christianity is is what the kingdom of God is internally. When he came to uh, to the Jews in Matthew, he's, 
John the baptizer was a preparer for the kingdom of God, right? He prepared men to be able to understand the kingdom of God, repent and turn. And then Jesus is, 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 comes on the scene. John the baptizer is a preparer for the way. And Jesus was the way. So this king, look at the Matthew, uh, Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's not external. It doesn't have to do with what you do on the outside. But the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's an internal work of God's Spirit. And it's relational. And it changes a person. And it is, and, and now we obey because of relationship, because the Holy Spirit fills us. We've been changed. We've been set free. Our sins have been, uh, absorbed. Uh, our judgment has been absorbed. So the kingdom of God is internal and it produces righteousness, joy, and peace. So when Pilate asked uh, Jesus, my kingdom is not of this world, uh, he didn't understand what the kingdom of God was. Now let's look at Matthew. As we see this developed, that's the whole theme of this book. Matthew 3, verse 2. Jesus comes on the scene. This is John the baptizer preparing. Uh, 3, 2, Matthew, I've already quoted this. John the Baptist came preaching and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. We are preparing for the way of Yahweh, the Lord. Make His paths straight. And then if you go to uh, 6.13, uh, this is in the Beatitudes. Look at this. Uh, Jesus in His great prayer as He teaches the disciples how to pray. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. This is going to point to the internal work, but this also looks into the future when God's kingdom will be established on this earth. He came the first time for internal work, the second time external rules and reigns from Jerusalem, complete fulfillment of Scripture. He will be king over the whole earth. Fulfillment of Roman, I mean of uh, Isaiah 9. Unto us a child is born, unto us the son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Right? Hadn't happened yet, but it will happen in the millennial kingdom when Christ rules and reigns from Jerusalem. So, the kingdom, he came first time, preparatory, internal, second time, political, governs the whole world, righteous, external. So we see that. Look at 633. Jesus again says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, internal, pursuing Christ, seeking Him. Not talking about the external. Seek the first the kingdom of God, and all these external things are going to be added to you. Right? So we see that. Look at uh, 1311. Jesus emphasizing what the kingdom of heaven is. This is what Pilate could not understand. Talking about the, the, the disciples that understand parables. Uh, 13.11, He answered and said to the disciples, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, those outside the kingdom, those who aren't His, his elect, those who haven't been uh, uh, drawn to Himself, and to them it has not been given. So we see that the kingdom of heaven is in... Look at verse 38, same chapter. 
we see this, Jesus speaking. The field, this is talking about the sower of the, the sower of the, of the tares and the wheat. Verse 38, the field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. So there's a distinction between those in the kingdom of God and those who are not. And then lastly, uh, I feel eyes rolling back. 1914, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. That means you must apprehend this in childlike trust and acceptance and faith, right? Just as a child is totally dependent on his mom and dad, so we, his children, are totally dependent and trust in him for everything. John 3, 3. This is when he talked to Nicodemus. Remember, we discussed this about being born again. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see it in the present internally, and he will not see it in the future. Comprehensive, near prophecy, long-term prophecy. 3.5, same thing. Most assuredly, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He must be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in order to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then uh, the last one, of course, is in, the, is in the, uh, Corinthians, talking about the resurrection of the dead. Uh, we see Paul speaking of this, 1524. Uh, another great verse. Then comes the end, this is after the last enemies destroyed death, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father who's put an end to all rule and all authority and power. So we're talking about the millennial kingdom. Death is overcome. Christ is risen from the dead. And uh, His people are established. We see that. Now He says, Pilate asks this question, Are you a king then? Is he king? Yes, he is. And so we see this question answered. And Jesus doesn't deny that he's king. He doesn't say, he says, he tells him about this kingdom, which he doesn't understand. He said, we're not going to fight for this external kingdom because that's not why I came the first time. It's internal. And then he said, Pilate said, are you a king then? And Jesus said, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I've come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth, and everyone who's of the truth, here's my voice. Where does Jesus say He's King? Yes, He does. Let's look at what Paul says. First Timothy, Paul in his, uh, in his exhortation. 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortable, immortable, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. So we see Paul say, talking about Jesus who came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm chief, he says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God. Jesus is God. He's deity. He is who He says He was. Look at 6.15. 1 Timothy 6.15.
he which he manifests in his own time, talking about the, the fight and the good fight, blameless until our Lord Jesus appearing, that he will manifest in his own time. He alone is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and dwells in unapproachable light, which no one can see or can see, to him be honor and glory forever. So is Jesus king? Yes, he is. And look at the great confession in the Revelation 19.16. Look at this. This is the name on his robe and on his thigh. As he comes with his, with us, his army from heaven, the return of Christ, verse 16, 1916, and he has on his robe and on his right thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the ultimate, he's the only, he's a preeminent king. So when Pilate asked him, are you king? He says, yep, I am. He fulfilled three roles on this earth. He was king. That's yet future. He's prophet. He told, tells forth God's word. And he is a priest, right? He's prophet, priest, and king. He fulfills all of the Old Testament prophecies about himself. Not yet happened. He's the king of our hearts. But he will be king of the world one day. And he's king. And he reigns forever. So Jesus is king. He will be king. And he's prophet and priest. I'm going to close there. We'll talk a little about the truth as we get more into and see what uh, Pilate's decision. And we'll look at some of this. And uh, we'll look at the crucifixion of Christ uh, next time. Yes. 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 The first time he came was not to set up an earthly kingdom. They misunderstood completely the Old Testament. He he petitioned them and called them to believe in him so that they could enter internally into God's kingdom, yes. And they rejected him and they despised him, right? And we talked about that because God had hardened their heart. Because his real purpose was to save the Jews, but to save the Gentile world. And later on, soon, he's going to come back and save the Jews. And that we will both be in the millennial kingdom with him. Good question. Yes. Anybody else? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in your providence you sent your Son and that he came to die on a cross to be cursed, to be forsaken as you poured out your wrath on him for your people, us, that we would be saved and we would be reconciled to you and we would have our sins paid for and absorbed wrath. We thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you that all these events, what he did, what he accomplished, Nothing was accidental. Everything was sovereignly in your plan to the way you died and to how you died and to the, 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 uh, the hypocrisy of this, the leaders of the Jewish nation. And you were killed by Romans. 
Father, thank you for your work. Thank you for the finished work. Thank you that we are in Christ. Help us to draw consolation, strong consolation from your word that it's accurate to the nth degree. Not a dot will be uh, not fulfilled. Not a, a crossing of the T will be unfulfilled. Jesus came to fulfill it all, and he did, and he will. And help us to be faithful to you and obedient to you. Help us to be uh, content, not afraid, and passionate. And fight the good fight. In your name I pray.